The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. Whatever our, our likes and dislikes and opinions, how we're raised, your word is constant, and the things we share in common in your word don't change. And they're not based upon subjective thoughts, they're not based upon our background, they're not based upon our opinion, or at least they shouldn't be. They're based upon your opinion. And so, Father, we look to your word this morning. Help us to be ones that are mindful of your opinion and desirous of sharing your opinion. And if we are any otherwise minded, <coughs> that we might change the way we think. And frame our minds on what you've revealed concerning yourself, what you've revealed about us and our relationship to you, and that we might, as a result of this transformation, ever appreciate more who you are and our relationship that we have to you as our Father. Amen. So we're looking at, <coughs> have been looking at a study, starting a study on uh, God the Father, uh, just Virtually in an introductory mode still, even though we've been looking at several weeks now, we've been looking at, uh, after our, our introductory introduction, <laughs> our first introduction, part one, uh, we've been looking at statements, plain statements that state that the Father is God. And while we might scratch our heads and go, why would we be studying that? Because everybody knows that the Father is God. And my response to that is, well, no, everybody doesn't know that the Father is God. Uh, we see some statements in the book of 1 John where people who were attending church, who were members associating with other believers, uh, <clears throat> they didn't understand that the Father was God. They denied uh, that the Father was God. They denied uh, the deity of Christ. They denied the deity of the Father. They denied some aspects of, of his deity anyway. And so everybody who professes to be Christian, who goes to Christian churches, don't necessarily understand things that we take for granted about God and who he is and God the Father makes he, he, he doesn't leave us to assume that he is deity because he makes a number of statements plain statements that declare his deity so that tells me he wants us to understand without a shadow of a doubt God the Father is deity and so we've looking specifically at what we call Granville Sharp rules there are between 18 and 20 of them in the New Testament that relate particularly to the Father's deity I say 18 to 20 because there's a couple of Greek texts uh, that are what we call uh, textual problems where there's a little ambiguity as to whether there's a Granville Sharp construction or not. But uh, be that as it may, there's at least 18 statements in the New Testament that use this Granville Sharp rule related to God the Father. And when I say Granville Sharp construction, we're talking about a statement that has uh, two subjects of the same case and gender that are connected with the word, the conjunction, I'll, I'll use the theological term so we can really be impressed with how much we, theology we know. Conju joined to the conjunction, it's chi, which is, we call it and. Uh, in this case, it's God and Father. The first noun, God, is preceded by a definite article and the second one is not. So we have this phrase, the God and Father. And because the second noun does not have the definite article, it's a further description of the first one. So when we say the God, 
we could translate it, who is the Father? Father is a further description of who, which person of the Godhead it's describing. So there's three persons who are God, but when we see this phrase, the God and Father, it's emphasizing that the Father is a person of the Godhead who is identified as God. And we've been looking at these first statements. We looked at three statements that relate. God doesn't just use this, this Granville Sharp construction just to throw out the fact that God the Father is God. He always links it to a statement concerning uh, how we should respond to his deity. We have three statements we looked at that were related to his glory. That he has an opinion about himself, we should share the opinion that he has about himself. Uh, we bring glory to God when we share his opinion about who he reveals that he is. Uh, so, some ways we can, we can, we looked at what I call his four faces, where we, of four faces of glory, where we can recognize glory as, as having four different um, ideas connected to it. Uh, glory can, rep can be represented by an opinion, it can be represented by a reputation, it can be represented by weight or significance, it can be represented by light, a physical manifestation. And so there's four different ways that glory is represented or understood. And sometimes one aspect of that is emphasized more than another in the context. And so I call it the four faces of glory. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. You can just call it glory and understand that it's got four different ideas associated with it that represent what glory is. We started looking at uh, there's four no five five places where what, what this weight weight significance light reputation and uh, opinion and so God has an opinion of who He is and because that uh, that opinion is accurate it's to His glory and because His actions always represent or in harmony with His opinion that gives Him a certain reputation and that reputation balances out with his opinion of who he is. That's to his glory. Uh, there's great significance to who God is. Uh, there's a lot or, or weight associated with that. More of what Tim's been going over with glory, showing that the Hebrew idea of the word, there's, there's weight or significance with who God is. Uh, when you start looking at uh, the, the attribute and essence and characteristics of who God is, uh, it should impress you uh, it should weigh down upon you with the significance of who he is. Um, one of the things that we're looking at this morning is the fact that there's four phrases associated with this Granville Sharp rule that are associated with the word we call blessed. We're translated blessed. And uh, this morning, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a different vein off this, this, this look at blessed. We're, we're going to come back around to it, but... <coughs> I was kind of flippantly in my mind thinking, I, my purpose this morning, I'm, I'm going to come and, and going to confuse you this morning. And that's, uh, most of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, yeah, what's new? But um, it, it's not hard because when you have a confused individual trying to explain a confusing subject, the result should be obvious. It, it could be confusion. There are things, in other words, there's some things that God reveals about himself that are confusing. And one of the things that we have a tendency to do to make these things that are either, either confusing or just uh, maybe I should say difficult to understand, uh, we tend to oversimplify. And as a result, uh, we lose out on some of the weight, the significance of what God is revealing about himself. 
And when we're talking about this word blessed, it seems on the surface like a very easy to understand word. Yeah. Well, jeepers. I've been sabotaged. <laughs> There's something seriously lacking in that one. Namely, all of its innards are gone. I don't know where they went. English, we have blessed. This is the word specifically we're looking at in the Greek. And the reason I'm saying this one specifically is because this is what we commonly call an adjective, which we know an adjective describes a noun. <coughs> the problem with this is when we come to explain the words that are, the, the verses that this word is used in, we always seem to translate this or look at it in a verbal sense. And when we understand a verb is an action in, in the Greek, it, it describes activity. It can be an active uh, sense or it can be a passive. It can be, I am acting or I'm acting acted upon. <clears throat> but this is an adjective, but it's a, it's a special kind of an adjective because of this ending on it. It's not just an adjective, it's something that, that's described in grammars as a verbal adjective. And that becomes confusing. We're going to come back around to that, just holding that, that thought. We're looking at this term blessed and it's describing something about God, but it's not describing, as I've said before, it's not describing a subjunctive sense. In other words, what we should speak well of God. That's a subjunctive, it's a, it's a conditional clause. I should speak well of God. It's not a word that means I am speaking well of God, verbal in an active sense. It's not a word that means God is being spoken of by somebody else spoken well of. That's a passive verbal sense. It's an adjective that's describing a quality. And that TOS ending on the end has some significance. But before we get to that, we're going to introduce this, but we if we look to Romans, <laughs> chapter 1, <coughs> I can't, other than the fact that I can't talk, bear with me. Romans chapter 1, <coughs> verse 19 makes a statement that is important to preface this lesson with, I think. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. This is talking in a negative sense about individuals that knew some things about God and uh, chose not to respond appropriately to that revelation, but I'm just taking it for, for face value what the verse says. It says, for what can be known, and that word known to means to experientially know. It's not just talking about intellectual knowledge. There are things that we can intellectually know about God, but there are things that can be experientially known about God, and this is the word to experientially know. And it says, for what can be experientially known about the God, not just God, but the God, I think referring to um, back to verse 18 where it's talking about a quality of God's wrath and the, there's no definite article there. It's talking about all the persons of the Godhead. There's a quality of wrath associated with all of them in relationship to mankind's unrighteousness. And that God, uh, that, that wrath, uh, God made manifest to some of these individuals because they didn't respond properly to what he revealed about himself, what they could experientially know. So he says, what can be experientially known about that God who was revealed from heaven in verse 18, what can be experientially known about him is plain to them because that God has 
made it evident to them. He has revealed it to, the, to them. And so God makes a very clear statement here that regardless of how, uh, how much weight is associated with, with God, how, much, how many things that are difficult to comprehend and understand about God, there are some things that are evident, and God has revealed them. He's made it evident to, to us. He's revealed, revealed them plainly to us. Now, we can look at natural revelation. We can look at creation. We can see some things that are very evident about that God reveals to everybody about who he is. Uh, mankind can respond appropriately or inappropriately to that, but it's not God's fault if they respond inappropriately because God has made it plain. It's evident to see. It's up to us to accept that or reject it. <clears throat> Taking that as a springboard, as a foundation, I want to make it really clear, God is not some mysterious being that we just plain can't know anything about. And, and that seems to be one of the attitudes that, that um, a lot of people want to have about God is that as an excuse to not exert themselves to understand what he reveals about himself plainly in, the word, in his word, is that, well, he just can't be understood. His ways are mysterious. He, he's just a mysterious being. He, he created everything, and he just kind of went off and is doing his own thing. We can't really know who he is. We can't know what he's doing. So just do the best you can, and, and everything will work out okay in the end. Or not, as the case may be. <laughs> I don't know. We just shrug our shoulders and 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 uh, claim defeat in, in any ability to understand Him. God can't. Things can't be understood, but there are some things that can't be understood about God. Uh, if if we, you can turn. To, in fact, I I don't. I just have my New Testament with me this morning. I I had all my books. I thought I had my Old Testament, but I had some. In, extracurricular stuff with me and I seem to have neglected my Old Testament. But if somebody wants to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 2 verse 6, maybe uh, Leslie, if you mind reading Second Chronicles 2 6 for us. <clears throat> it's my only Old Testament passage that I have this morning. <clears throat> Solomon was faced with something that is extremely difficult to understand about God. A familiar passage to us. I think... Second Chronicles 2.6 But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? Okay. Is anybody here um, a mathematician? <clears throat> No, nobody's willing to raise your hand. <laughs> with a statement like this, start with this first read, I, I probably wouldn't want to claim to be a mathematician either. If we would like to think of ourselves as a mathematician, or if we want to try to calculate how God, how big God is, um, let's just try. What what method of, of measurement would you use to demonstrate God's size? Would you use feet or inches? Would you use centimeters or meters? Would you use uh, cubits? Or would you use light years? I mean, you know, what method of measurement would you use to describe his dimensions? See, we, we have no capacity to comprehend. We, we understand the heavens of the heaven, the heaven of the heavens can't contain him. So in other words, God is bigger than the heavens. How big is he? Well, there's a song written. How big is God? It brings that, that question to life. How big is he? Well, he's vast. He's immense. We use terms like immense to describe him. We use uh, words like omnipresence. 
in, in relationship to his creation, uh, he, he's everywhere. And so he's really, really big. How big is God? Well, he's just real, real, real big. And how many reels do you want to put in front of that? How many very, very, very big? You, you choose a number that you like and you'd be happy with it. Um, he's just really big. We can't comprehend the immensity of how big God is. It's something we can't grasp. <clears throat> he tells us in his word that he's big. But he doesn't try to define how big he is. He gives us a, uh, he gives us something that we can relate to, a basis of reference. The heaven of the heavens can't contain him. Well, I have about this much understanding of how big the heavens are. And that's only because uh, of modern science has given us capacity to look beyond what I can see in the stars up there and gives us just a vague idea of distances and I say a vague idea because I can't understand light years I can't understand millions of light years I can't understand billions of light years I can't understand what a thousand miles is sometimes when in my limited perception sometimes in my limited experiences but the point is God doesn't try to give us a comprehension of how big he is he just lets us know he is really big and be happy with that be satisfied with the fact that he is bigger than anything that we can relate to, and let it go with that. <clears throat> there are some other things that we think we know about God that he does not reveal about himself. And this is where philosophy comes in. This is why God speaks ill of philosophy, because we try to impress ourselves with how much we know, and we try to impress sometimes other individuals how much we know about God in areas that he does not give us information on. And so basically, um, well, we might call it grasping at straws. We might call it um, <coughs> fiction. <laughs> we might call it uh, your opinion versus we're just, one of the things that we're looking at, there's a statement that is we accept, we have accepted as true, and we get it from our theologies. We don't get it from the Word of God. We get it from theology, which means this is a dangerous premise to start on. But and this is a this is a fundamental theology. This is something a author that I think most of us would recognize is pretty fundamental. I. Lewis Berry Chafer, he's got, this is from his eight volumes, this is his first volume, <clears throat> and he makes a statement about God, <clears throat> and <clears throat> this is an area that I have accepted because this is what I was taught about God, and as I've been doing some of these studies, I, I start to question this because I haven't found any statement that actually in the Word of God that backs this up, and the statement that I'm making <clears throat> is concerning God is described as simple, he, his simplicity. And what, what the author means is just by this term, it is indicated that the divine being is uncompounded, incomplex, and indivisible. Man, on the other end, is a compound. He's spirit and matter. And so what he's saying, because God is described, turn to John chapter 4, there's a plain statement concerning God, essence, I think we all uh, could probably quote this. John chapter 4, verse 24. It says, God is spirit. He actually has the definite article here. He's talking about the, the Father. Uh, 
the context even shows that he's talking about the Father, because in verse 23 it says, The hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshiper, worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The God is spirit. The God is a reference to the Father, and that's what we've been looking at with the Granville Sharps rule. The God who is Father. The God and Father. <laughs> the God, who is identified in this particular context, is identified as spirit. And this is where our theologies get the concept that God is simple because he's described as spirit. In other words, he's not a compound of a bunch of different substances. He is spirit. Well, let me ask a question. How many of you have taken the time, and it would take some time, it would take some effort, but have taken the time to um, develop a microscope that can see spirit substance and to really define its qualities to know whether it's a compound or whether it's not. What makes up spirit? What's its components? Does it have any components? Is it just one, sub, one, one component or is it a composite of several different components that makes spirit substance? So let me throw something out for you to think about. Three verses to look at. Well, first one we just looked at, John 4, 24. God is spirit, okay? What is spirit? Well, it's there's something to it. It's a substance. What is, what is, what is it? <laughs> I don't know because I haven't been able to uh, take the time to develop a microscope that can see it, and nobody else has either because we don't have the capacity. It's an immaterial substance, <clears throat> but it is a substance because God has, God exists. <laughs> there's, there's some form that he has, we, we can't see it. But look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. <coughs> says, Now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless by the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a verse that we go to to describe the difference between man and God. Man is complex because he's composed of three substances, spirit, soul, and body, where God is simple because he's just his spirit. But let me ask you, is the spirit of man the same substance as the spirit of God? Well, of course it's the same substance because it's called spirit. Look at um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. <laughs> Hebrews, <coughs> Hebrews 1, 14, uh, verse 13. Which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your feet? For are they, these angels, are they not all ministering what? Spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Spirit beings, angels, are called spirits. Are, is, is their spirit substance the same sp substance as my spirit substance, is the same as God's spirit substance? Because it's all called spirit. So it's got to be all the same thing, right? Because it's all called spirit. Well, let me throw out a verse for you to, to think about, to really confuse things a little bit. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about our physical substance, part, part of the chapter is. 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> verse, uh, oh, starting in verse 
038, God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. So we are a spirit, soul, and body, but not all flesh is the same flesh. He explains that because there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes it clear that flesh is not all the same flesh. Where do we see in Scripture that all spirit is the same spirit? Where do we get that? We move into the realm of speculation because God doesn't tell us that all spirit is the same spirit. He doesn't say that spirit is, there's different types of spirit. He doesn't say. He doesn't tell us. We're left to guess because he uses one term to describe God, man, and angels. He uses one term, spirit, so we assume it's all the same. But he uses one term for animals and human beings as well. Birds have flesh, fish have flesh, but the word tells us that they're a different kind of flesh. And in our, we have the capacity to measure them physiologically and see that there's differences. But we don't have the capacity to, to look at spirit substance so how can we know whether all spirit substance is the same or if it's all different? We don't have the capacity. Yes? First, I'm thinking of as you're talking about this is uh, John 3. It's talking about the wind, but it's comparing wind to spirit. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so basically the conclusion is it's, you, don't, you can't because it's non-physical. That's the very emphasis of spirit. But that you can measure by what it does. Measure what it does. Results. And I think there is an implication that there's different kinds of spirits, just in the fact of different kinds of spirit beings. You can't see them, but you can see what they do. They have different authority, different different uh, things they can do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so with that, again, it's by implication. It's not a clear-out statement that there are different qualities of spirit. Okay. Thank you for that, because I hadn't thought of it. But, but I share that opinion, and that's part of the reason I'm going through this. But the point that I, I'm emphasizing, <coughs> or choosing, wanting to emphasize, <coughs> is that there are things that we assume about God that he has not revealed. And when we're looking at this um, subject of, of, of who God is, we're trying to define, uh, make a distinction between what he has revealed about himself and what he has not revealed about himself versus what we speculate about him. And there are some things that God, some statements that God makes about himself that he does not try to define. He doesn't try to delve into pages of philosophy so that we can understand it. He just makes a plain statement. One of those plain statements that, that we have is in John 4, 24. God is spirit. How do I define that? What, is, what does it look like? He just says that's what it is. I believe that there's coming a day when we will be able to understand what spirit substance is. That's just my opinion. I don't have anything to base it. I believe we're going to be relating to angels. We're going to be relating to God uh, in a personal basis. We're going to be resurrected with a similar body like Jesus Christ has. It's a body that's relating to spirit. <coughs> and we're, t we're told that at that time we're going to know as we are known. So we're going to have a level of, of knowledge that we that's greater than we have today. But today, God hasn't revealed it to us. 
And so we can spend our time speculating or not. But just the point is, God makes a statement, and we can accept it or reject it, but he doesn't try to define it. We can understand that he's bigger than the heavens, but can we really understand it? We can accept it, but can I really understand his immensity? I can't understand it. We, there's other things I can just throw out to make reference. Can I understand omnipotence? I can accept it. I can recognize his power by the evidence of it, but can I understand it? I can't even begin to grasp it. Let me throw the big one out, probably the biggest one for us to grapple with, eternity. I think all of us can get an idea of eternity future because we all have a biological life right now and unless we are personally faced with our own mortality with a diagnosis of a, of a terminal illness, most of us just kind of look at life as going on and on and on and on and we don't really think of the end until we're actually faced with it and then a lot of us get really uh, really ex upset about it because we don't really understand what, what we have to look forward to. <laughs> but eternity future I don't think is, is as difficult for us to understand because we just keep going on day after day after day and the, the reflection in the mirror keeps changing and, the, and it's really slow, it's real gradual so we don't think about it. But eternity passed. God makes statement concerning himself. Jesus, or not Jesus, God in, back in Exodus, how did he find his eternity? The fact that he's eternal. He says, I am that I am. Moses asked, who should, who should um, I explain to Pharaoh, who sent me? God doesn't sit Moses down and give him a long, a, a, a seminary course on eternity on the eternal aspect of who God is so that you can really understand how he, I always have been. He just says, I am that I am. Just tell him that. God doesn't waste a lot of time trying to explain something that we can't explain, that we can't understand. He just says, accept it. Accept it for what it is. I am that I am. I am the eternally existed one. I, I'm not I was. I'm not I came to be. I have always existed. He's immutable. He's never changed. He hasn't developed. He hasn't grown. He didn't come into existence and then grow and develop and metamorphose, evolve into what or who he is now. Explain that so that I can understand it. If you would, because I'm not smart enough to get it on my own. Well, there are people that try to do that. And that's clues into the realm of philosophy because God hasn't tried to explain it. He makes a plain statement that he is eternal, and we can accept it or reject it, but I can't understand it. I can't even, I can understand a little bit of eternity future. I've got this much understanding of eternity past. I cannot even begin to comprehend it. And when every time I try, I get a headache, and I get frustrated, and I go on to something else, because it just doesn't work out for me in my brain. It doesn't compute, so to speak. I don't have the greatest brain in the world by a long stretch, but um, there's been some bigger brains in mind that haven't been able to figure it out either. This word blesses, getting back to our, our word, there's, when I say there are some things about God that are hard to understand, I have been guilty of trying to oversimplify this, just like a lot of people try to oversimplify God. What is God? God is love. He's just this big, what was that term? He's that this big purple love bug in the sky or something that this per person, he heard somebody say, <clears throat> just scratch, where'd you get this from? Like, God is, they try to oversimplify who he is. God is simplicity. They try to oversimplify uh, who and what God is. And God is simple because God is just love. Well, no, God is not just love. Uh, let, let me complicate things a little bit further. Our understanding of God's simplicity. Man is compound because he is one person with 
three parts, spirit, soul, and body. Okay, well, I, I accept that. And I can see that there's a compound there. Compound is more than one substance. Or something that is simple is just one substance. God is simple because he is just spirit. God is three persons in that one spirit. That starts to complicate things in my mind because now we're talking about Trinity. <coughs> Who here wants to say that the Trinity is a really simple concept to understand? <laughs> I was raising my hand flippantly because I really think that it's one of the most difficult concepts about God to understand. The thing that we call, we say God is simple because he's just spirit, but he's three persons within that singular spirit substance. That complicates things immensely. In my mind it does, and in a lot of people's minds it does. So God is not as simple, perhaps, as we like to think, and we can't really see spirit substance, so we can't really know if it's a composite. If you look at flesh, uh, one, one thing I was... I don't I'm, know about you, but in my mind, simple versus complex simple to me means less than complex. Right. And so that is a crazy description of God. Well, it's, it's used in relationship to his or as his substance, okay? They're not saying that God is, is simple to understand because yeah. of his character. They're saying he's simple because of what makes up his, his stuff that makes him. Because he's one substance, spirit, that makes him a simple Okay, that, that's the basis by which they relate to that. And if God is one, just one substance, you could say that he's simple. But let's just look, if man was just flesh, is flesh simple, just one substance? Um, I, I was one of those nutty people who in my youth uh, decided to become a nurse. And to become a nurse, I had to take two classes that um, looked in depth at flesh. One was called anatomy and physiology, one was called microbiology. And the foolishness was when I took them both in the same quarter. <laughs> and I had to get good grades in this to get into nursing school. If you look at anatomy and physiology, which is a study of flesh, of mankind's flesh, you will find that it is not a simple substance. Making that noise, it's not my flesh, it's the bone that makes up part of my flesh. It's the bone that's in there, and now it hurts because I did it. <laughs> We have a whole lot of things that make up our flesh that make us a very complex being. Just our flesh is very complex. It's not simple at all. It's very complex. How do we know that spirit substance isn't a composite of a multitude of different things that make one spirit substance? And a different formulation of those things makes the difference between human spirit, God spirit, spirit beings. We don't know. But the point is... Um, Trying to understand God can be complex. Getting back to this word, this word, this, this uh, ending, this, this is a, in, in the English would be the equivalent of a TOS. It just looks like the same in the Greek. That complicates our understanding of that word because this is not just an adjective. And I was trying to understand this idea that is the Greek form of this word is not just called an adjective, it's called a verbal adjective. Well, that sounds really theological. What in the world is a verbal the uh, adjective? Well, <clears throat> of course, I went to my trusty first year uh, Greek 
uh, book and um, I couldn't find it. So I went to my trusty second year Greek book and I couldn't find it. I haven't, by the way, I haven't taken Greek. I'm not like Tim and Josh here who I haven't been to seminary. Um, I bought books and, and I referenced them to try to understand these things on my own. So it takes me a lot longer and some of the some things I just plain don't get because I'm not as smart as they are. But I don't have the benefit of, of going systematically through these uh, like they have. But I, I have the references. I have, he calls it the doorstop because <laughs> it's big enough to use as the doorstop. So I went, I went to this. I, I found this ending in this book. And so this ending, he tries to explain this ending in this book. This is almost 1,500 pages. He uses several of those pages in this book to explain those three letters those three little letters because that ending complicates our understanding of the word significantly it is not a verb in other words it is not God is well spoken of because God speaks well of God he's not well spoken of because spirit beings speak well of God that's one of the, the ways that I defined this term is I, I went to the book of Revelation. There's four living creatures around the throne of God that are continuously speaking, holy, holy, holy. They give him glory. They give him his, his honor. <clears throat> they give thanksgiving. So they are continuously, night and day, saying good things about who God is, God the Father sitting on the throne. That's a verbal understanding of this term. And there is a verbal use. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. We see the verb in used in relation right alongside with, with this uh, adjective in Ephesians 1.3. It's used in association with our Granville Sharp rule. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.3, blessed, my translation says be, we're going to change that to is, and we're going to see why that is in a minute, but blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Now we have the verbal form. The first one is the, our adjective. Blessed is the God and Father. That's our, our verbal adjective. And it says, who has blessed us? Now it uses the verb. God the Father speaks well of us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now he uses a noun form. So we have three different forms of this word in this one verse. We have a noun which is described the thing. A noun is a person, place, or a thing. A verb is an action. And, the ver and an adjective describes a noun. So he says, this is the well-spoken of God, who is the Father. And it doesn't say, because he speaks well of us. It just says, he has spoken well of us. That's the verbal form. He actively speaks well of us in our position in Christ. With everything, the noun form, that can be spoken well of in the heavenly. So we have three forms of this word used in this verse. The, the last two, the second two, I don't think we have too, many, uh, too much difficulty understanding. We can understand a thing that is spoken well of. We can understand mostly the verbal form of this because uh, this is a word, we almost use it exclusively in the verbal sense. We, we get our best illustration of understanding by uh, the use of, in funerals where somebody gives a eulogy. We say good things about somebody, whether they were really good or not, we choose to say good things about somebody at a funeral because it's politically unacceptable to say something bad about somebody at their, at their funeral. <clears throat> I don't know why, because they can't do anything about it if we do, but I, their relatives could. Maybe that's the reason we do it, because we don't want them coming after us. <clears throat> but. Uh, 
point is, we understand the verbal aspect of it. We can actively say good things about somebody, or we can understand it both in the active sense and the passive sense. I speak well of you. You, in the, in the active sense. You are spoken well of, that's a passive sense. But we still think of it in a verbal sense. This is not, so I went, like I said, I went to my, my bookstop, doorstop, bookstop, where did I get that wrong? Doorstop. And I see one, two, three, four, several pages. I didn't read the whole thing. Tim, Tim and Josh had to out, outline, as I understand, you had to outline this entire book, right? When you went through seminary. Um, if I had a hat on, I'd take it off. <laughs> no, did, did you, you went to the seminary? No? No, okay, you're in the same boat I am. Okay. <clears throat> we'll sit at the same table for a moment. Okay, so. <laughs> this is his, the, the fact that he uses several pages to try to explain these three little letters means that those three little letters are difficult to understand. And when I said at the beginning, I'm going to confuse you by this lesson. To order, if we try to understand this word really literally, it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, this says these. It says it's a verbal for the first. That that TOS comes from a verb stem, so it, it has its basis as its, its foundation is a verb kind of a basis. But it says these verbals are not exactly participles in that they have no tense and voice. Okay, well, participle is a noun that kind of acts as a verb. That's kind of hard to understand for some of us. But then it also says uh, that it's, it's a problem to decide whether it's verbal or, because it has no active or passive sense. So we think of verbs as being active or passive. Being acted action or being acted upon, so verb is an action, but it doesn't really have an active or a passive sense. But it, it's verbal as it in its foundation. Okay, so it's not a noun. It's not a so it's not really a participle. It doesn't really have was it mood and voice or is a or voice and what is it with a participle has? It doesn't have uh, tense or voice. I get my 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 definitions right here because I can't rely upon my memory. That's why I have notes. <coughs> memory is pretty fallible. It's getting more and more fallible. The, more, the longer I look at the, in myself in the mirror, the more fallible my memory gets. <laughs> Figure that one out. Anyway, it's not exactly a participle. It's not exactly a verb, but it started out as a verb. What in the world is it? <laughs> what in the world does this mean? Well, the closest that I can come, if I wanted to boil all these pages down to a definition, this may or may not be accurate. Correct me if I'm wrong. But to me, if you want to say that it kind of, it's kind of a verb but doesn't have an active or passive sense, we have in English what we call a state of being verb. Now we call a state of being verb is. It just, it just is. It's not doing something. It just is. And that's kind of what this verb, that's why we kind of like this translation, blessed is the God and Father, because nothing that he should be spoken well of. It's not saying that he is being spoken well. See, God could have chosen to use a passive voice verb in all of these places where it says, blessed is the God and Father. It says, it should be saying, God the Father 
is spoken well of. He could have chosen to use a passive voice verb, but he doesn't do that. He said, blessed is, he uses a state of being, which is not indicating that spirit beings are speaking, are speaking well. He's spoken well of because spirit beings are speaking well of him. He's not saying God, other persons of the Godhead are speaking well of him. He uses a state of being to describe a quality they're describing some aspect of who and what God is. God is as to his what makes him up. He is the well-spoken of one. Now, God doesn't try to, to, to define this for us. What God does for us is he uses this in the context that we can understand. In other words, he uses this in association with good things that he does that he subjectively should be spoken well of. In other words, when we look at Ephesians 1, because he speaks well of us in, in our position in Christ, it's logical to assume we should speak well of him because of what he has done. What he has done is a reflection of what he is. He is the well-spoken of one, and so the things that he does should be well-spoken of. And we can see that in the book of Revelation with what the four living creatures are doing, they are continuously around the throne speaking well of him. We see spirit beings seeing God's judgment during Daniel's 70th week in the book of Revelation. Angels uh, looking at his judgments in relationship to one man, what mankind has done, and they speak well of God. They, they say, what is it, Revelation 16, where we have the second, third bowl judgment poured out, and uh, God is turning the uh, fresh water and salt water into blood and the spirit beings are looking at that and they're saying righteous and true are you God because they have shed the blood of your prophets so you're giving them blood to drink and so they're speaking well of God when he's demonstrating his wrath an aspect of God's character that human beings have the most difficult time saying good things about God be about his wrath how could, how could a God who is loving demonstrate wrath well that's not the God that I want to serve Oh, the God in the Old Testament is a different God than the God in the New Testament because we see a God who's wrathful in the Old Testament but a God who's loving in the New. It's two different gods. Because I don't like the idea of a God who's wrathful. But spirit beings that are witnessing God pouring his wrath out in the future are going to be saying good things because they're going to see his action as a response to mankind's unrighteousness and they're going to see... They're going to glorify God because they're going to give him his proper weight. They're going to see his actions balance out with uh, what he says he is. His uh, righteousness balances out with his holiness, balances out with his wrath, balances out with his love. They don't disagree with each other. All of God's character harmonizes even when he's demonstrating wrath. And so spirit beings will be not they're going to be using the verbal. They're going to be speaking well of God in the verbal form, but they're going to be doing so because he is, as to his character, the well-spoken of one. How do we really understand a verbal sense? Can I? Yeah. Okay. Just to help understand a verbal sense, Ephesians 5.1 calls us, we're beloved of God. It's a verbal, it's the exact same form, except it's so agape. We are not by nature beloved. But right. God loves us, sort of the object of that. Yeah, the one in Romans 1.19, that which is known of God, that's also a verbal adjective. Gnostos, knowledge. So what God makes available for us to know, and when we know it, we call that, that's a, a thing that we know. So those are two examples 
uh, one in Ephesians and then one in Romans. But I just kind of looked at some others. Like Christ is called, he's called the eklektos, which is an adjective. It's also the verbal adjective, which means God the Father chose for him to be the Christ. And that's the way they describe it. Jesus refers to prophets, that a prophet in his own home country is not a received one, welcomed one. That's a verbal adjective. Our Bible's translated as a verb, just like you're saying. They translate like verbs so because the adjectival sense doesn't make a lot of sense to us in English. But it shows it shows people as being the product. It's using an adjective described in some way that person is the result of some action. Love directed to them, knowledge directed at them, choosing directed at them, reception directed or not directed at them. Just those were just uh, four examples in there. So I don't know if that helps at all to understand that. Going back up there, so then. You know, when you're talking about God being the the well-spoken of one, that's His nature, and I would say that that means going back in eternity, which what we said is hard. That means that the three persons of the Trinity speak well of themselves. They speak well of each other, and that's perfectly acceptable. If I get up and say I'm, da, 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 sometimes you people go oh, okay, but sometimes you're going oh you're arrogant, but God can do that. And it's completely accurate in the way he expresses his glory and such. I don't know if that's helpful at all, but uh, just to think of some examples of that word, uh, of some examples of the of this form, this verbal adjective, and there, are, I mean, there's yeah, look hundreds at first, of them throughout the New Look chapter. at First Peter one three. We've got a couple more minutes here. We have another Granville Sharp rule here used in relationship with this this blessed. He always uses it along with something that we can identify. <coughs> That is well spoken of, but we we can really best relate to it in a verbal sense because we think of God being well spoken of because of what He is doing, because of His actions. First Peter, chapter one, verse three. So this one is an adjective too. Yes, uh, it's also the same. This adjective, this verbal adjective in this form, is only used of God. We mentioned, I think, last week. It is used eight times in the New Testament. It's used twice of Jesus Christ, and it's used six times of God the Father. It is never used of mankind. So we're not talking... Mankind can say good things about mankind. That's why we talk about uh, eulogies at a funeral. We can say nice things about somebody all day long, but we don't qualify to hold this, this uh, description of us. This is not used of us. No matter how much we like to speak well of ourselves or speak well of somebody else, this is not true of us. This is only true of God. I would say, by extension, it's, it's true of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is equally deity. It's just used of the Father and the, and the Son in, in, in Scripture. But because the Holy Spirit is God, it would be equally true of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, I speculate, but we see some illustrations of that in eternity future when we get to a better understanding of God the Holy Spirit. Very likely. We're, we certainly have lots of reasons to speak well of the Holy Spirit. It's just the Holy Spirit is not seeking to glorify Himself, and so we don't have that reflecting Him. <coughs> but it's stated only of God the Father and God the Son. First Peter 1, verse 3. <coughs> Blessed, not be, it's not... We should speak well of God the Father. It says, blessed is. This is his, his character. He is the well-spoken of. And it gives an illustration because every act that he does stems from a character of a well-spoken character. That's why the actions that he has, that we would think of in a verbal sense, 
are well-spoken of because it stems from a character that's a well-spoken of character. There is nothing in God's character that can be spoken ill of. You could take all of God's, God's attributes and all of his characteristics and wrap them all up in one package and say, that's the well-spoken of God. And those characteristics include his wrath and the fact that he hates. And it's included with love. It's included with mercy. It's included with grace. It's included with goodness. But you have to include hatred and wrath in with that too. And that entire package is the well-spoken of God. And because he's the well-spoken of God, every act that comes from him is an act that can be spoken well of because he is the well-spoken of. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, guarded in heaven for you. Uh, Etc. Going on and on and on. We have a living hope. and We could... Uh, go on and expand upon this, how this hope is different from the Old Testament's hope. Uh, the Old Testament saint's hope did not have a living hope. When um, Jesus asked, was it Mary or Martha, about uh, Lazarus, Lazarus being raised from the dead? Well, we know that he's going to be raised someday. someday. <laughs> but he had to die first. Um, Job looked, ha had a hope. Uh, but it wasn't a living hope because he said, I know worms are going to eat my body, but in my flesh I will see God. See, he knew that he was going to die. He didn't have a living hope. We have There's two aspects to our living hope. We have a living hope because, well, we always think of this in regards to the rapture. Because there's going to be a generation that doesn't see death, and so that's a living hope. We have a hope that we're not going to see death. But this isn't just talking about looking to the rapture. This is a hope that we have right now, a hope that... As I am living, I can experience God's quality of life right now. That's a hope that I have. It's a promise that I have. I can experience his life right now. While I'm alive, I don't have to wait till I'm dead and then raised again to experience this, the results of this promise. I have this available to me right now in this biological life, in this clay pot right now. It's a living hope. And I can lay hold upon it right now. And so... That's something that I choose to speak well about God. But it comes from the fact that he's not just doing something good for me. He is as to his very nature, the very essence of his being. He is the well-spoken of God. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that this is one of the ways that we can speak well of you. We can thank you. We can speak well of you by praising you. We can recognize benefits uh, that accrue because of your character by praising you. We can recognize aspects of your righteousness that even if we don't uh, receive them ourselves, we can thank you that, that you're a, a God who is completely righteous and will demonstrate that righteousness in wrath to the recipients of wrath. We can thank you that we're not recipients of that wrath. But we can thank you that you're not going to ignore forever uh, acts of unrighteousness and you will deal with the unrighteousness that is that we see around us right now that seems to be being ignored, but it's not. It's being uh, it's being kept. It, it, it's being uh, weighed out. It's being the measurement is being kept track of, and you will deal with it appropriately. And just thank you, Father, that you're a God who is indeed our Father, not just by title, but you're a Father to us 
because of the nature of who you are and the relationship you've chosen to to uh, have with us. You're a, you're a God who cares for us. You're a God who deals with us as children and promotes our growth. You're a God who provides us the very best things that are necessary for not just uh, to exist, but, but provide for our well-being. And Father, there's so many ways that we can speak well of you. So Father, help us to just be appreciative as we go through this study and learn, uh, reminded perhaps, of things that, that we know about you and just appreciate you ever more for, for who you are and the relation, the grace that you have chosen to lavish upon us in placing us at your right hand in a position of privilege far above anything that any human being has ever experienced or could have ever imagined in the past. And we have that available to us right now and the benefits that accrue because of that help us to be ones who are living in light of that and demonstrating a life that, that truly appreciates who you are because you are the God who is well spoken because of, of who you are. Amen.